Okay, so you can grab a seat, start wrapping up your conversations. We've come to that point in the service where we open up God's Word together. Uh, my name is Star George. I'm one of the pastoral staff here, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. Uh, we're so excited that you could join us this morning. If you are just joining us, we are in a Lenten series right now. We are looking at the teachings of Jesus, especially what He says about Himself on the way to the cross. And so now, would you please give your attention to the reading of God's Word? Today's reading is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower, leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, He sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, patience. Well, it was about a year ago, in the height of the pandemic, when the New York Times ran an article on landlord-tenant relations in the city. The article considered the impact of anti-eviction laws, uh, legal measures that were intended to protect tenants who had lost income, who could no longer afford their rent during the pandemic. Now, naturally, these laws were championed for helping people who were going through difficult circumstances. It was, after all, an extension of grace meant to help those who were genuinely in need. And yet what the city quickly realized was this, that many tenants actually began to abuse and take advantage of this grace. Tenants who did have the means to pay now no longer saw fit to do so. In fact, the article cited one landlord in particular who had not received rent in 15 months and was owed over $25,000 in rent and utilities. This is a landlord who genuinely cared for her tenants and made every effort to be gracious and understanding towards them. She was keen to find creative solutions, to set up a different payment plan, and to reason with her tenants. And yet, despite her best efforts, things only got worse. You see, not only did her tenants refuse to pay rent, but they grew increasingly hostile and abusive towards her. They would bang on the ceiling and keep her up at night. They would leave the water running intentionally to jack up her bills. They vandalized her home, stole her mail, and keyed her car. They yelled at her, spit on her, and cursed her as she went in and out of her own home. She writes near the end of the article, 
This is not what I signed up for. The stress is killing me, and I just want my tenants gone. I wonder, what feelings does this story conjure up in your mind? How would you feel in our situation? What would you do with tenants who rejected you and refused to pay? What would you do as a landlord if you were being cheated, abused, and threatened like this? Well, curiously, our text this morning invites us to consider this very scenario. Because in our passage today, Jesus tells a story about the relationship between a landlord and his tenants. It's a story we will find about God's relationship with people. It's a parable of a gracious, long-suffering landlord God who is trying to reconcile with people who reject his authority over them. And so Jesus here invites us to reflect on this story, to consider it carefully and respond to God our landlord appropriately. He asks us here to remember three things. First, God's authority. Second, God's patience. And third, God's redemption. God's authority, God's patience, and God's redemption. We'll begin looking at God's authority. We know the context of this passage, it's pretty important because immediately before Jesus tells this parable, Mark records how Jesus enters into Jerusalem, God's city. And as he enters into the temple, he grows quite upset over what he finds. There are people selling things in the temple and treating God's house like a marketplace. And Jesus won't stand for it. He begins driving out all those who he deems to be disrespecting God and maligning his word. What's happening here? Well, you see, the scriptures tell us that God had given his people an extension of grace. He'd given them his word, his presence, land, blessings, and a temple, and they were to steward these things as good tenants. They were to be fruitful and faithful in God's service. But you see, instead, like presumptuous tenants, they took advantage of God's grace. They began using these good things to promote self-indulgence, corruption, greed, and unfaithfulness. And what's happening in the temple proves it. You see, I think Jesus wants his listeners to understand that what is happening in our parable is a visual representation of what is happening in Jerusalem. God, the Lord of the vineyard, is looking for fruitfulness among his tenants, and what will he find? Will they be faithful to him? Do they even still recognize his authority over their lives? Well, Mark gives us an answer in the very next scene before our parable. The scribes and Pharisees are furious with Jesus. They're furious, and they come to him asking this question in Mark chapter 11. They ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? They're essentially saying, how dare you, Jesus? How dare you do these things? And if you know the interaction, Jesus actually doesn't answer them. He refuses to give them an answer. And yet in the very next scene, he tells the people a parable that I would submit to you answers this very question. By what authority do you do these things? This parable is about God's authority as a landlord over his people. And it goes something like this. A man takes great care of his vineyard. He plants it. Now in that day and time, this is no small endeavor. You have to break up the ground and prepare it. You're removing it of sticks, stones, and rocks. You're tilling the soil and fertilizing it. It's difficult, time-consuming physical labor. And then he plants his vineyard. 
We hear also that he fences it. He wants to protect the land from anyone breaking in and stealing his produce and from wild animals. He builds a tower. This is so that he can watch over the vineyard and ensure that it's protected. This means that this is a pretty substantial plot of land. He needs a tower to watch over it. And then he digs a pit for the wine press so that he can crush the grapes. So sure is this landowner that this vineyard is going to produce a harvest that he's already anticipating it. He's thought of that already because his ultimate goal, his greatest desire, is that his work would bear incredible fruit. Who is this man? Well, scholars believe that the language of this parable resembles quite closely the words of Isaiah chapter 5. Because in his prophecy, Isaiah likens God's kingdom work to be almost like preparing a vineyard. Listen to what he says. He writes, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes. You see, this is Old Testament imagery used to describe how God brings about his kingdom in the world. And I think people listening to Jesus would have been quite familiar with Isaiah's words. They understand that Jesus is speaking about the God of the Bible. As the landowner tends to his vineyard, so too is God tending to his kingdom. He has sown the seeds of his kingdom. He has made provisions to protect it. And he is now in the same way waiting to enjoy a bountiful harvest. But then he does something really quite astonishing. He leases this land to a group of tenants and goes off to a far country. Why does he do that? Is he not able to take care of it? Does he need assistance of any kind? No, not at all. The hardest work has already been done. The vineyard has been skillfully planted and nothing more is needed. It's going to produce an incredible return, good, costly fruit. Why, why on earth would anyone give away this land now? You know why? Because God's delight is to give you a share in the fruit of his labor. God's delight is to give you a share in the fruit of his labor. God's delight is to share his kingdom and its benefits with tenants like you and me. Tenants who did nothing to prepare the vineyard, but who are simply invited to share in its fruit. This is what Jesus is saying. And it's marvelous. It is. I remember uh, several years ago when a friend of mine invited me over to his place for wine tasting. I was a poor seminary student at the times and couldn't imagine spending my money on anything as frivolous as that. <laughs> well, I could tell that my friend was particularly excited about our evening. Don't worry, he said, I'll get the wine. It's on me. You see, what I didn't know about that is family, his family had a vineyard in the Okanagan region of British Columbia, and he had a special vintage of wine that he had helped make personally that he wanted to share with me. I listened to him tell me all about how his family looked after the vines, tilled the soil, selected the perfect grapes, and poured all their effort and energy into making great wine. Honestly, I didn't get why it was such a big deal <laughs> until I tried it. I tell you, I remember taking the first sip and this warmth just washed over me. My eyes actually widened because I had never before had anything as wonderful as that. It was exquisite wine. 
I have to tell you, the kind of stuff I was used to drinking was complete garbage. <laughs> Some of you young adults know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that was nothing compared to what my friend offered me that day. Listen, I, I knew nothing about wine, and I had contributed nothing to this vineyard, but the son of the vineyard owner himself had invited me to share in the fruit of his labor. In fact, it was his joy to do so. He couldn't just drink it alone. It was too good not to share. You know, I think God's kingdom is kind of like that. I do. The gospel is such that you and I did nothing to earn it and we had nothing to contribute. But God, out of his good pleasure, says to you these same words, I brought the wine. It's on me. Come, I want you to taste and share in the fruit of my labor. You follow me? Look, God has authority over his vineyard. It is his. But in his good pleasure, he has somehow authorized people to participate in his kingdom work and to share in its benefits. Jesus is saying, this is what God did for Israel when he made them his tenants. This is what God does for the church. And listen, wherever you are in your journey of faith this morning, I want to tell you that God has a vision for your life. And his vision is this, that you would be abundantly fruitful in all that you do. It is. And to that end, I think God has given to each person the measure of resources, skills, qualities, and even faith so that we might be fruitful on his behalf. But, but, this kind of fruitfulness can only be experienced in relation to God. He owns the fruit. It's his. And the problem that this parable illustrates is this very strange fickleness of the human heart. It is this. We want the fruit, but we don't want the relationship. We want God's stuff, but we often don't want God himself. And I think Jesus here wants to remind us that we need this God. We do. Everything good we have and enjoy belongs to him. He's the landlord, and we are his tenants. He has authority over his vineyard. This is Jesus' first point. You know, secondly, I think Jesus wants to teach his listeners about God's patience. You see, God has invited tenants to share in his fruit, but the problem we soon find is that these tenants don't want to share. They want to hoard. They are denying the owner what is rightfully his. You understand legally they aren't fit to be tenants anymore. They should just be thrown out. But they're not, because God is being patient with his people. And so here's where we are in the story. This land is, passes into the care of these tenants. They receive tenancy over the land, but the authority of this vineyard still rests with the owner. And at the harvest season, the owner sends a servant to them to receive from them some of the fruit. Uh, what's happening here? Why is he doing that? Well, in the ancient world, this was a perfectly acceptable way of running a lease. A vineyard owner would take care of his land and would steward it well. And if he had to take care of business elsewhere, he would lease this land to a group of tenants who would take care of it for him. And then in the season of harvest, he would send servants to these tenants to receive from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And the remaining fruit they would sell as profit. This is a perfectly acceptable way of running a lease. So when this owner sends servants to tenants to receive from them the fruit of the vineyard, he's really asking for what is rightfully his. What he's asking for is his rent. It's time to pay up. I want to stop there for a moment, because if you're here and you're not a Christian, this idea might bother you. 
you're reading this parable, and if you're really honest, this whole exchange sounds kind of transactional. Is this what the gospel is all about? Maybe God seems to you today to be this person who's just after his ROI. Is God just this absentee landlord who's given me things and then disappears until payday? I don't think so. I don't think so. And here's why. First, as we already discussed, the vineyard already belongs to God, and so does the fruit. He doesn't need tenants. Remember, he's not a landlord exacting proceeds from his tenants. He is a landlord sharing proceeds with his tenants. Do you follow me? But second and more importantly, Jesus wants you to understand. He wants you to understand that if it was his investment that God cared about most, he should have stormed the vineyard right away. He should. His judgment should have been decisive and immediate. He shouldn't be this patient. He shouldn't care to implore people who reject him and insult him and abuse his name over and over and over again. And yet he does that for all kinds of people every day, even now. He is patient with you and I. Do you understand? I think Jesus is saying that God cares, like really, really cares about people. He's wanting to reason with and win over his tenants, but their rejection and hoarding of his good shows that they want nothing to do with him. They don't. They just want his stuff and the freedom to do with it as they will. They don't want to listen. In fact, they've grown so independent of him and so self-sufficient that they'd rather this landlord just go away and disappear altogether. And therein lies the plot twist. You see, ironically, these people wish that God were an absentee landlord and they're miffed because he's nothing like that. He wants relationship and he wants their faithfulness and allegiance and they don't want to give him that. Which begs the real question for all of us listening. Is God really that absent in your life? Or could it be that you actually prefer him at arm's length? You see, as it were, God is very present. He's present where people believe in him, and he's no less present where people refuse and reject him. Why? Because, Jesus says, this landlord God is on a mission. He is patiently sending his servants out with a message of reconciliation, and he's giving people time and opportunities to repent. Will they actually listen? Well, Jesus answers that for us in the parable. These servants are not received well by the tenants. They're humiliated, beaten, and killed for their message. In fact, there's an escalation of violence that correlates with an escalation of important people being sent. As more and more servants are being sent, more and more violence is being done to them. These tenants just don't want to listen. Grace Toronto, I think we ought to take very seriously these words of Jesus. This parable makes us ask the tough question, are we actually listening to God? Are we actually listening to what he is saying? I think Jesus teaches that there's a gradual hardening of the heart that happens when people continue to neglect and reject God's word to them, whatever it may be. 
Let me say, I think there are some of you here right now who are nursing sins and behaviors that are unbecoming of the gospel. You don't want to deal with it, and you've convinced yourself over a period of time that God is okay with that. He's not. He is patient with you. I think when these tenants rejected the first servant, they were probably a little anxious. What's going to happen to us? Will we be in trouble? Then the next servant came, and they beat him up. Nothing, no response from the landowner. And they killed the next servant. Still nothing. This landlord must not care. Do you see what's happening? They continuously reject God's word to them and come to the conclusion that he must not care that much about their behavior. You and I do that all the time. We imagine that somehow God must be okay with what I'm doing or not doing because he appears to be silent. But do you see the problem? I think we regularly mistake God's patience towards us as his indifference. And Jesus says no. God's patience is giving you time to deal with your sin. So would you do that? Please do that today. I think there are others of you here who think you would never reject God. You're committed to him. But you're not reading his word, so you don't actually know what he does and doesn't want from your life. As a result, you hear something from a pastor or small group leader that is said to you in love, and it really grinds your gears. You hear the word, but you don't think God could possibly mean that. I remember meeting up with a guy, a wonderful chap, several months ago, who had made a decision to leave our church because we're not a quote-unquote affirming ministry. He was a self-professing Christian who thought he had an issue with me and what I was saying. But as we spoke and opened up the word together, it became clear that he'd really had an issue with what the Bible was saying. You see, he didn't like what he was hearing because the voice of his own God was completely foreign to him. Let that not be the same for us. And listen, it doesn't matter how spiritually mature a Christian you think you are. I think all of us, all of us have these blind spots. We all have this human tendency to pick and choose what we want to hear God say to us, whether through his word or through his people. I know I do, regularly. And if I'm really, really honest, I think the truth about myself is this, that sometimes when I'm confronted about my most deeply rooted sin, I can think that I have a problem with that servant, when in reality, I actually have a problem with my Lord. And I know, I know I'm not alone in that because I've seen you do it too. Are you and I so very different from the tenants in this passage? You see, this is the problem of Israel. They've continued to reject all God's messengers, all his prophets, all his servants, because they think the issue lies with these. And they have failed to realize that they have a fundamental problem first with their landlord and God. Jesus says that these tenants, God's people, just don't want to listen to his word. And so they start beating and shaming and killing God's servants. And yet God is patient with them, as he is patient with us. This is Jesus' second point. You know, third and finally, I think Jesus wants here to teach his listeners about God's redemption. These tenants have continued to reject God's authority, and he's been patient with them. But what is to happen now? You see, all of a sudden, the story starts to get really dark. 
because what happens next is astounding. This owner decides to send his own son to these tenants. And by the way, everyone listening to the story would know that this seems somewhat naive. They all know what's been done to these servants. What makes this owner think that his son is going to be treated any better? This is either extremely benevolent or extremely naive. And yet this is what happens. These tenants take this son and they kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard. So these are the sins of the tenants. They have refused to pay rent. They have denied the owner what is rightfully his. They have shamed and killed the servants, and in so doing, they have insulted the owner. They are trying to steal the inheritance, and they have now murdered the owner's son. They have coveted, stolen, and murdered, and now they think they can get the inheritance. This is absolutely absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Everyone listening to the story would know that there's no way that you can kill your way into the inheritance. This is a wicked thing, and only destruction will come for them. And Jesus makes clear that in the same way these tenants are rejecting the authority of this vineyard owner is the same way that God's people are going to reject his son. Because in Mark chapter 11, Mark does a stunning thing before he tells us this parable. In Mark chapter 11, Mark records the triumphal entry. The Son of God is returning to God's own temple, to God's own city. And what Mark wants you to understand is that now that the son of the vineyard owner is returning to his vineyard, how now will he be treated? Mark tells us in verse 12, he says of the religious leaders that they were seeking to arrest him. This word uh, arrest comes from the Greek word kratio. Don't think arrest actually does full justice to what this word means. It means to seize, to take hold of forcefully. What Mark wants you to understand is that in the same way these wicked tenants seized the son of the vineyard owner, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard, is the same way that these leaders of Israel are now seeking to seize Jesus and do the very same thing. History is going to repeat itself. The son is going to be killed. And yet through the rejection of the son, God has somehow, somehow ordained to bring about incredible redemption. Jesus in our passage quotes Psalm 118 about himself. He says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a cornerstone. By this he was saying that though he was going to be rejected by people, he's going to be rejected by people. God had ordained that his life and death would be the foundation of God's new kingdom. Because 72 hours after telling this parable, Jesus will allow himself to be mocked, tortured, and then hung on a Roman cross. In his death, he will take upon himself all the sin and rebellion of God's people, his many, many tenants. You see, this is the central point that Jesus is making. In and of ourselves, we do not submit to the authority of the Lord. We cannot receive the message of his servants, and we find ourselves unable to pay the great debt that is owed to our landlord. It is the great debt of our sin. And yet the good news of the gospel, listen, the good news of the gospel is this, that for those of us who trust in Christ, it is as if this son of the vineyard order comes out to us unworthy tenants and out of his own possessions, out of his very life, pays to the landlord what we rightfully owe to him and have neglected to pay. 
The great scandal of the gospel is that this landlord sends his servants, sends his son, finds them all killed, and instead of coming in destruction and wrath, comes in love and peace because of Jesus Christ. Do you realize how amazing and yet how preposterous it is that God should do that? The question we are left with is how can this landowner come with anything but anger and wrath and justice after what has been done to his possessions, his reputation, his family, his own begotten son? And yet he will. Not only will this owner come in love, but he will actually do something so outrageous as to give us the inheritance of his dead son. Because the inheritance that these foolish tenants are trying to steal, Jesus will willingly purchase for us by his blood. You see, the gospel says that when we are joined to Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins and restored to our right place as God's tenants. It is expressly in this redemption, Jesus says, Jesus wants you to know that you and I can become truly fruitful. Well, some application. What is this passage calling us to do? How are we meant to interpret it? Well, the son has been killed, but this Jesus, heir to the vineyard, has also been risen from the dead. And scripture tells us he will return one day as co-owner of his vineyard. And how will he return to us? How will he return to you? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I think this parable sets before you a decision. You have a choice to accept or reject Jesus Christ, and you must choose carefully. I want you to see in this passage that God has invited you to share in the fruit of his labor, and he desires a real relationship with you. I think it's quite possible that God has already been putting his servants in your path, people who genuinely care about you and have been telling you about Jesus. Maybe you even came to church with them this morning. I implore you, listen to these people, receive their message. I think it's true that God is incredibly patient with us, but as this parable reminds us, our continual rejection of him will one day lead to destruction. I'd ask you to think, Spend some time thinking about this parable some more and consider what it might mean for your life. The Christian here, I think this passage calls us to accept Christ, yes, but it also calls us to be exceedingly fruitful. And to do that, there's a spiritual deafness to God that you and I need to overcome daily. So here are two things from the passage that you should commit to doing regularly. First, listen to God's word. Listen to God's word. It is crucial that each of you should set aside some time every day to read the Bible. Every day. One of the main barriers to fruitfulness in this passage is that God's people cannot recognize God's voice. You cannot hope to do anything of significance in the Christian life if you are not willing to hear what God has to say. If you are relying on the sermon and Sunday service to give you everything you need for the week, you will grow disappointed in the Christian life. It's just not enough. It's not. You need to find ways to diligently and regularly be in the Bible, both alone and with others. And look, I get it. There are many of you who feel like your schedule is far too busy. Maybe your school or work is too hectic, or you're caring for an infant. Trust me, I understand. 
Nothing has destroyed my spiritual disciplines more than becoming a father. <laughs> it's a difficult season, but I've realized that I need God's word all the more. And so I listen to the Bible on my phone as I wash dishes, prepare dinner, and change diapers. I pray to the Lord while my baby is screaming during my few quiet moments in the shower and also on my way to work. It's not ideal, but I'm trying, and I know the Lord honors that. You can do the same. Others of you just feel like your devotional time feels dry, or maybe you just don't know how to read the Bible. That's okay. That's okay. Now more than ever, there are some great apps and resources to teach you how to do that well. Talk to somebody on staff, email me, join a small group. We want to make sure that your time in the Bible is vibrant and rewarding. Whatever it takes, do what it takes to know and hear God's word to you. That's the first thing. Second, listen to God's spirit. Listen to God's spirit. God most often speaks to us, I think, primarily through his word. But very often he speaks to us through his spirit in our conscience. Mark tw- tells us in the verse 12 that the religious leaders, they, they heard, they perceived that Jesus had told the parable against them. They heard and realized that Jesus was speaking to them. They just didn't like what he had to say. Far be it for us to make the same mistake. And so you be diligent to listen when God sends servants with a word for you. Allow good brothers and sisters to speak truth into your life. Cultivate relationships of fellowship and accountability with others. Don't let your relationships be shallow here at Grace Toronto. Don't do it. At the same time, you be diligent to ask the Lord privately. Lord, are there areas of my life where I'm resisting your work? Are there ways that I'm thinking or behaving that are displeasing to you? Show me, Lord, and help me to make things right. Listen, you do those things, those two things every day. Listen to God's word and listen to his spirit. And I promise you, you will be amazed at the kind of fruitfulness the Lord will bring to your life. May we do that for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the owner of this vineyard and you delight to share with us the fruit of your labor. We thank you for how you've already done that through Christ and you are doing that through your spirit even now. Father, I pray that you would convince us that we need you, that you would uh, unstop our ears, that we would not be deaf to what you have to say with us that we would be convicted, that we would obey you and listen to you with all of our hearts. I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have some time uh, now for Q&A, for questions related to the sermon, um, and Stephen's going to be helping out with that. Sure. Uh, thanks, Mark. Okay, here's the mic. So the first question is um, it's the following. I find myself praying constantly against feelings of hostility and rebellion towards God that shows up when I read his word or try to pray. Why is this happening to me? Hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, I would need to know a little bit more about your circumstances, but thank you for your question. I think um, when you read the word, uh, there's lots of instances why God doesn't choose to listen or feels distant, uh, and one of them is sin. Uh, one of them is sin is when we're, we're trying to uh, pursue God, and, but we're also doing so in a way that's not wholehearted. Um, and so I, 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 can't, I can't say, but I wonder if that's something that you might struggle with. 
I also think that there's wisdom in actually reading the Bible and praying with other people. So is it possible that maybe you're doing this alone um, and you're feeling the, the frustration of not being able to, to, to access God or pray to Him or read His Word in a way that's fruitful? And what you actually need is people to come alongside of you and help you in that. Um, so that's my best guess at an answer, but it, it'd be difficult for me to speak anymore without actually knowing the particulars uh, of your situation. But thanks for your question. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second question, um, it's along the similar lines, but as a believer, how do I allow the truth of God's word to challenge my own belief of my righteousness? I like that question. I think, I think it's as simple as you read it. I think God's word is designed to do that. Isaiah 55, 11, he says, I, uh, my word uh, will not return to me empty. It will do and achieve the thing for which I sent it. It shall succeed in the task. I think uh, the, uh, the Bible authors talk about the Word as this thing that's living and active. It will do that in your life. It will, uh, and any kind of hostility, any kind of problem that you have with God or with other people, I think the Word will automatically bring that out if you just read it. If, you, if you've been reading the Bible for, the, for a year and there's something that doesn't bother you in there, come talk to me. Because, because I assume, I expect that you should find things that bother you, that rub you the wrong way, because this is God's word to us. And because of our sin and rebellion against God, we don't naturally accept these things. But God helps us to do that through His Spirit. So continue to read the word and um, journey with other people if that's helpful. Thank you. And uh, the last question I have here is the following. I struggle with praying and reading the Bible. I don't pray for a long time. How do I overcome this weakness? I'm trying to discern what it is that you're asking. I think there's a temptation in the Bible, it certainly is for the Pharisees, that um, they perceive that their prayer, uh, praying for a long time, using many words, praying in a very impressive way, meant that they were more spiritual and more righteous. Um, I don't think the length of your prayer is something that you ought to be focused on so much. Um, I've talked to a lot of people in our congregation who are asking me, uh, what, what should my devotional time look like? Should I be spending 15 minutes, a half an hour, an hour? I, I, actually, think that, I actually think that devotional time is, um, in some ways, it's kind of antithetical to the gospel, that you think that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come together in this one period of time and God is going to speak to me and I'm going to take everything I can from this one moment. It, it just too, puts too much pressure on this. Rather, I think, I think you should commit to reading the Word and I think you should commit to praying to God all through your day. Talk about the things that you're seeing with God. Talk about uh, as you walk along the road and you see people struggling, pray for them. As you, uh, as you encounter different situations in your work or in your school, talk to God about that. I think, I think it's a myth that you should boil your devotional time and all your prayer to just this one singular moment in the, in the morning and then you're just good for the rest of the day. I, I, don't, think, I don't think that's what, what the gospel calls you to. Um, but, but read the word diligently and, and pray. And um, I sense that a lot of the questions today are to do with how do I pray and how do I read the Bible? And so if that's something that you're struggling with, um, do come talk to me. I'd, I'd love to do that. Um, I think one of the problems of the church is that we help somebody come to faith and then we just hand them the Bible and they're expected to know what to do with it. And, and I, I don't think that's fair. I think we need to help people do that well. And so if you're not sure how to do that or, and you're struggling to uh, experience a fruitfulness with God as you read His Word and pray, uh, please come talk to us. We want to help you with that. Absolutely. I think that's, that's good for right now. Thanks, yeah. Stephen. Thanks, Tarek.